welcome to Rework, a podcast by Basecamp about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Sean Hildner. And I'm Waylon Wong. This episode, like so many things in my life right now, started with something I read on the internet that made me mad. <laughs> like that old uh, XKCD comic where that one person is sitting at the computer and says they can't come to bed because someone is wrong on the internet. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so back in July, if you remember July, I believe that was 15 years ago, hmm. I read an article in Marker, which is Medium's publication about business and startups. The headline was, How Remote Work Could Destroy Silicon Valley. And the subhead was, The tech industry is built on serendipity. If workers flee the Bay Area, what's left? This piece talked about the beautiful alchemy produced by chance encounters in the Bay Area. This idea where you have startup founders and venture capitalists and coders all bumping into each other in coffee shops and co-working spaces. Okay, so like is the idea that with tech companies going remote and people moving out of Silicon Valley, maybe you won't get those random encounters that could lead to the next great startup? Exactly. But as astute listeners of Rework know, Silicon Valley and the tech industry, they're not places where just anybody can bump into a venture capitalist at a happy hour. You have to get entree into these networks. And usually that happens by coming from the same kind of background as these networks established gatekeepers, which is to say a predominantly white and male crowd. The piece in Medium that I read does address this point, but not until the very end, and then in kind of a way that undermines the entire premise of the article, which <laughs> is frustrating. So that's why I was mad and decided to do a whole episode about my feelings. All right. Well, today on the show, we explore the idea of tech communities through the stories of two people from different generations who saw a system that didn't work for them and decided to build their own. My name is Del Del Medina, and I'm the executive director of Black and Brown Founders. I think I read or heard that you grew up in the Bay Area. I did. I arrived here at the age of eight from Barranquilla, Colombia. Um, my family is from Barranquilla originally, and it was a big shock and difference. Barranquilla is a very tropical, Caribbean, loud city. And San Francisco is a very foggy, hilly city that was also undergoing a lot of changes. We had had just the murders of Mr. Moscone and the folks uh, that were in the Guyanas with the People's Temple had passed away. And there was a lot of grief in the city when we arrived. I didn't realize that as a kid. I just think like you pick up on things and you're like, this is a very sad city. I now have been here for 30 odd years and I really love it here. Do you find that it makes you a bit unique in the tech industry and that you are not a transplant um, and that you, you know, spent your entire upbringing or the vast majority of it in the Bay Area? It is. I also have to just be clear, like my my parents are artists for the most part. So I just grew up with very creative, very artistic people. And so I don't come from a place of a lot of logic is the thing that I would say. It's like, I, I don't come from like scientists or mathematicians. Like those, those people do not exist in my family uh, and, and do not exist for like several generations back either, or as my family has expanded either. So not only am I a San Franciscan that grew up here, that went to schools here, that remembers things about how neighborhoods used to be, that was here during the AIDS crisis, that knew a time and experienced a time where the tech industry wasn't the only thing that was here. And it makes me really sad sometimes because 
I think of all my friends who were quirky artists or had other professions and literally have not been able to stay in the Bay Area because the housing crisis was just so bad they had to leave or the works that they were doing was no longer valued at the same rate and therefore they couldn't sustain a living here. It, it used to be like you used to go to a party and it would be like a mixture of people who were both college educated, working class, people of all races and ethnicities. That has no longer the case. When did tech enter your life in kind of a way that you can pinpoint as being your entree into the kind of career you have now? I was the only girl in the after school computer club when I was 10 at Alvarado <laughs> Elementary School. Steve Jobs would be in the newspaper and I would cut out pictures and cut out articles about him. Up the street from me, we had a friend, a neighbor that was an editor at PC Magazine, and I would get PC Magazine from him, perhaps because it was completely the opposite of what my parents did and how they interacted with the world. Uh, and I was trying to make sense of a world. But we were also really lucky in the sense that at that time, Ruth Asawa was the art teacher. Ruth Asawa was your art teacher? Yeah, it's so odd because I just think of her in a very warm, caring way, because that's the way that she interacted with all of us. You had the school that was very ethnically and racially mixed and also class level mixed. It's the kind of public schooling that I wish all kids today would have access to. And it happened in the mid 80s here in San Francisco. Uh, and I now realize as a parent that a lot of that was because there was a lot of parent involvement, but because people saw that this was a community that they wanted to invest in. You know, not to do like a completely insane flash forward, but <laughs> as you as you think about getting into tech as a career, at, at what age did you become like kind of hyper aware that this like really interesting ethnically and economically kind of mixed group that you grew up in was starting to shift and change and that you were finding yourself in increasingly not very diverse spaces. You know, my first job out of high school, kind of beginning college, was at a bulletin board service in, in Berkeley, California called BMUG. We were a very diverse group of people there. Like there was queer folks, there was trans folks, there were black folks, Asian folks, Latinos, like we were all there. And then when the dot-com bust happened, that changed. And a lot of people started leaving tech, including myself, because one, we thought, oh, this was a fad. It's not going to like be a real thing. Two, unless you had studied computer science in the 80s and 90s, you didn't really have an entree or a way of thinking about technology that allowed like the normal human being to see like, here's what the future is. And so for me, you know, coming from a non-traditional background, which is like I studied humanities and I studied, you know, linguistics and I political science, like I never studied anything formally around tech. I, I came up during an era in which it was pretty much an apprenticeship model. You know, somebody would sit down with you and be like, OK, you want to learn HTML1? This is how you're going to learn HTML1. And that we would do that for each other all the time. And so when the dot com bust happened, and well-paid jobs around technology just kind of disappeared. A lot of people left. It was a very heady, important time. And when I looked at it and I thought about it, I was like, 
There was only two men of color, one Latino, one black man that I knew that stayed within the technology field and everybody else left. People became chefs. People went down to Hollywood. People decided to become teachers. And in the meantime, what ended up happening is that all the money people arrived, all the people who had MBAs, all the people who went to the the prestigious Ivy League schools started arriving Those folks are predominantly white, predominantly male. And next thing you know, like the industry's completely changed on what it looks like and who's actually getting opportunity to even interview for a job. So even though I had experience, like I would find myself going to interviews where people would be like, you don't qualify, regardless of my experience. There was no set of systems in place that would say, okay, this is what we're going to do to make sure that these folks who have technical skills are going to stay within this industry. And we're going to make sure that the industry doesn't become completely whitewashed. It was completely the opposite. It was just like, there's money to be made here. We have an education and pedigree. We're going to figure out how this is going to make money for us. And some of like the issues that we still have today around gentrification, around you know, displacement, all of those things started to happen then. It was just a really, really rough time for people. It was like the industry that sprung up in that period, like vastly undervalued your skills and experience. But nobody said like, here's how this as an industry is going to continue. And here's how you can stay. If anything, it was the opposite. It's like, it's over. And whatever jobs are still left, you have to have an MBA from an Ivy League college for you to qualify for even being sought after. I worked as a grants writer for an African-American theater company here in San Francisco. And in the end, what I ended up doing was rewiring with an IT person all of the computers, making sure that they didn't get viruses, (laughs) updating the website. All of those things were things that I ended up doing. During this time when you thought of yourself as being a tech lever, that you were making a pivot into a nonprofit career. Did you feel the pull of technology back in kind of like beyond just this, like the demands of your day to day job, like wiring up the internet for your <laughs> for your day job? Did you feel the pull in other ways? Like, this is the thing It's like, I, I've never said it was a love hate relationship, because it's not true. I've always loved technology. Like, I love seeing and and seeing how other people create something that never existed before. I love new ways of thinking and engaging in the world. I look at technology as an opportunity for us to grow as humans and for us to evolve our societies and uh, the impacts that that we have on each other. I, I come from the quirky, queer, transgressive part of the internet that got pushed out by commercialism. And that is a very different part of the world than what is currently existing right now in Silicon Valley. Let's just be clear, like as a Latina, nobody said you would be a great tech CEO. What, what, what are you thinking about? What do you want to build? Nobody ever said that to me. And I never said that to myself. I never saw myself that way until I was in like my mid thirties. It's really about seeing yourself within a story. And if you can't see yourself in the story, then you have no belief that you deserve to be part of that story, if that makes any sense. We're going to leave Dell Dell's story for a bit and hear from Michael Burhane. He's the co-founder of Pocket, which stands for People of Color in Tech. 
know, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I had like a really sucky retail job and I was like, this ain't for me. I can't, you know, I've got to have some kind of freedom eventually. So I started like a, an e-commerce website slash business. Um, and I kind of started to learn to code, kind of like do up the HTML, make it look nice and pretty. Um, and then the business completely tanked. This is like fresh after university, but the kind of tech skills remained. So I thought, you know what? I enjoy this. It's kind of logical and creative. So I learned to code. And in the end, I managed to kind of get an entry level job at a tech startup. I mean, it wasn't like it is now where there's like loads of boot camps and the stories of people kind of doing like nine weeks of coding and then getting a job. It just wasn't there. It just didn't exist. And I didn't know nobody in the tech industry. I didn't, I didn't have any friends that did it. And you one, you know, one friend of mine who learned to code a year before me, that was it. Like we didn't know anybody at startups. We didn't know any VCs. I think now there's a lot of content around this type of stuff, but it just wasn't there. This is like seven, eight, nine, ten years ago now. When did you start feeling like you were getting plugged into a tech community, a tech community that believed in you and believed in your skills and was there to mm. help you get better? Was it at your first job or did it take longer than that? I think it was at my first job just because it was such an early stage startup. I was like the first engineering hire and I worked side by side by the CTO. It was almost like a cheat code really. I could just literally watch everything they did and just copy them. And then they can look at what I did and say, yo, like fix this, do that. Both the founders, and I have much respect for them, but they both went to private school. So I don't think they ever had any misgivings about whether they were worthy to try and do any of this stuff. So I kind of just like took their confidence by osmosis and, and also just kind of by sitting next to them, it was like a cheat code. I could just leapfrog like three or four levels. And even though technically my job title was like junior engineer, just that one year, it was like three or four years packed in really. And then in terms of community, the only real community that I really experienced is the one that I had to kind of build myself through the company that we started. And I think that's why I started it. Cause I was like, there isn't anything here that speaks to me in that space. Like I know lots of cool people, lots of cool coders, um, but no one really looks like me or comes from my kind of background or has the kind of same experiences to me. So we kind of built Pocket to kind of fulfill that gap, essentially. Were there certain experiences or like specific interactions you can remember that made you realize that even though you were surrounded by interesting, smart people, that there was still that piece missing? It wasn't, there was never one particular thing. It was never one particular thing. I think it, it would be, you know, the odd like cultural references that I just wouldn't get. Just certain conversations just, just went over my head and it wasn't because I was a fool, it was just because I just, you know, we, we were all coming from such vastly different backgrounds. But it doesn't necessarily mean we still can't work together and make great things happen. There's, there is a magic in, in having people that are of different backgrounds, right, working together. But I did feel a bit lonely in that sense where I was like, they don't really get me personally. And maybe I've got to kind of look outside of work to find that. What is the origin story of Pocket then? What was the the first couple steps yeah. you took to get that set up? I actually like came out of like a really like bad breakup and I was like such so heartbroken. So I decided to book a, a random trip to New York. <laughs> and while I was out there, I was connected with a person called Ruth, Ruth Mespin. She is now uh, a computer science graduate herself. But at the time she was a teacher and we connected over like our love of tech and our love of you know, entrepreneurship. And when I came back to London, we stayed in contact, uh, just like on a WhatsApp group chat. And then I pitched the idea of starting pocket and she said, yeah, that sounds great. Like, let's just start. Um, it wasn't anything, you know, massive in mind. We just thought it was a really cool idea to start a blog that we, where we would interview people of color in the tech industry. And it just like snowballed from there. So it, it was kind of just like really random. Um, and if I hadn't gone to New York, I don't necessarily know if I would have you know, started this or at least in the same way, or I wouldn't have had such a great co-founder to start with at the very least. There are points in your life where you're just like so open to new things and new ideas and new concepts and just saying, why the hell not? It's almost a shame that you can't tap into that like all the time. But I think I was just like, what have I got to lose? What's the worst that can happen? 
you know, the beauty of the internet is that you don't need a lot of capital to start a business. We didn't put any capital up. It was just sweat equity. We started a blog, we put up a WordPress site. And how did you find the the people that you interviewed at first to start seeding the site with a lot of interviews? Was it just people you had met through your job and in, in London or people that were new in New York? So it was all from social media. I think we realized that in order for this to get any traction, we would need to kind of interview people that already had some kind of prominence. Um, so we interviewed a lot of like people that were prominent on Twitter, for example, but weren't, you know, in TechCrunch. They weren't in the kind of mainstream publications just because those kind of publications weren't focused on really telling the stories of like people from our back, our kind of background. So we found people like, you know, two, three K followers, they were doing cool things and we just DM'd them. You know, the first one was a bit difficult to get, but then slowly but surely as people saw the interviews kind of be publicized and, and people showing their love, it was a lot easier to get more and more people and it snowballed that way. That's really neat. And, you know, during this time, you're still working in tech. And are you going to the happy hours and the networking things? Or did those events never quite hold that kind of interest for you? Yeah, it never did, really. I don't really drink. So it was just like those things never really held any sway towards me or even hackathons as well. I never, I never really mm. saw the point of it. Maybe that's my own fault. <laughs> and I've limited myself. But I just, I just saw it as like, massive free labor and like coding 24 hours of like filled with Red Bull. I just didn't see the appeal to be honest. And maybe that's why I resonated more with doing things like on Twitter or for example, and I know Twitter gets a bad rap and it is kind of toxic a lot of times, but there is like an undercurrent where if you can use it for your own benefit, you can really meet some amazing people. And I think that's what we leveraged. And so with Pocket then, you started with these interviews. And then when did it start gaining enough momentum where you're like, oh, I think we could build this out even more? Because today when you go Mm -hmm. on the website, there's so much going on. Yes, it was all step by step, really. We got featured in, in a few like mainstream tech publications. We started a newsletter. And then from the newsletter, people reached out to us and said, well, can we use you guys for employment? So can we post our jobs, for example? Um, And we said, cool. And then we kind of brainstormed and came up with like a a relevant fee and then from there we scaled up the newsletter and then later on we built out a recruitment platform so that's when i was able to kind of do some coding before prior to that we just used wordpress um, and i built out the recruitment platform and then the podcast came later on a few years down the line so it, it all kind of happened just step by step how did you meet your co-host for the podcast abadesi uh, the amazing abadesi she actually i interviewed her for the for the blog um, she was recommended by another person who we had interviewed we had an interview posted the article and that was it really for about a year we rolled in the same circles like online and you know it's quite a small space you know in london in terms of people that are doing diversity work or anything to do with uh, diversity and inclusion Um, and then we ran into each other at a conference Um, and then later on i texted and said i've got this idea for a podcast are you game she was Um, and it's been a it's been a fun two years ever since at some point did you find yourself in the position of mentor like when what where was the point where you realized that people were coming to you and asking you for advice and that you had made the transition from someone seeking advice and mentorship to someone who was in a position to give it a funny moment is when somebody called me a gatekeeper and i just like i just chuckled and i was like oh my lord like i've this is how far we've come like you start this like small blog and eventually if if you don't let somebody on or if you don't if you make a, a, a content decision all of a sudden now you're a gatekeeper so i always thought that as a moment where like okay we've actually come far and there's a responsibility with what we do it's no longer just you know me throwing up a wordpress post and then in terms of being like a mentor you get dms and emails all the time people want to know like how did you do this as an underrepresented person in tech because there are so few examples of people like you perhaps that have done it sometimes it's a lot of questions. It's people, there's a lot of people that need help and how you do that 
without feeling bad was something that I really struggled with at first because you want to help everybody. It's difficult. And I think with the podcast, we try to do it in a way where we do give advice. So if there is like a certain topic, we will, instead of, you know, answering a hundred emails, we'll just talk about it on a podcast. Like how do you, you know, break into tech? How do you launch an MVP? How do you, you know, learn to code, right? And we'll do episodes on these kind of subjects so that in future you know, people can just like reference that. I mean, that's interesting, right? Because it just goes to show how this knowledge is really locked away for mm. certain people. If you think about maybe kind of like a bright young kid who gets into Stanford, and if you want to learn about building an MVP, you think about like all the resources available to that person. But then if you're someone who comes from a very different background, it's like maybe you don't even know where to start, right? To this day, I, I was taking part, for example, as a, a judge for like a pitch competition. And I just mentioned like, go read the Lean Startup. And no one, none of the you know young people had ever heard of it. Within the kind of tech entrepreneurial circles, it's kind of like the Bible, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's not their fault. It's just like culturally they're boxed out. Like they don't know anybody who's an entrepreneur. They don't know anybody who's worked in a tech startup. Thankfully, it's more open now than ever. You can just like, you know, there's there's guides and there's books and, and scores of websites. Um, but if you don't know what to search for, you don't know what to find. And that's why I often find myself having to like, just explain like, you know, just where to start. And once once I can tell them where to start, they can go off and find their own stuff online. For Del Del Medina, who left tech and returned, her journey back into the industry started when she got laid off from a nonprofit job. When this thing happened to me and I was just like, what am I going to do next? I found it really interesting that most of my life was now on a smartphone, except my relationship with my childcare provider. And I was just like, this is so frustrating. And then my then husband at the time said, you know, you should go and build something. And I was like, I haven't built software in years. I have no idea. He's like, why don't you try? And then that led me down this path of like being completely dismissed or discounted um, because it was like a nice mommy idea. Um, not taking into consideration like what the market capitalization around like childcare was at the time. Mm-hmm. And so little by little, I started putting together like an understanding of what does Silicon Valley actually mean? Even though I had lived here for forever, I didn't really understand how VCs worked or what that meant or where did VCs get their money or what are their expectations? How do these systems work? Like I really had to like study up on that. And I was trying to build this company And I just ended up finding myself with a lot of other people who were just like feeling the same sort of ways and experiencing the same sort of things of, of being discounted or dismissed, um, because they did not look or did not come from, you know, um, certain backgrounds and it was just really difficult. And so putting one foot in front of the other, now it's been almost like 10 years of doing work around finding community, creating community, creating a counter narrative of what does it look like for black and brown folks to create their own companies that are tech or tech enabled. We need everybody to do well in this country and we have more than enough for everybody to do well. Tech and technology has been a huge wealth creator, but it's also been a huge sustainer for lots of us, right? Because those of us who've had tech jobs and have paid at a certain rate, like we could surpass our parents earning income very, very easily and be able to lift our families with a tech job in a way that honestly, like when I was in my mid twenties and as a dot comer, I could tell you, like I paid for, you know, my younger siblings, you know, summer school because my parents couldn't pay for that. When my father lost his job, like I was the one that bought him shirts so he can go on job interviews. Like, 
there's been ways in which I, when I was a single young woman, was financially responsible and acted in financially responsible ways uh, towards my family that I would say my white male counterparts never did or would have never been in a position to do so. Like it, it just culturally wouldn't have been even a conversation. You know, my friends would be going off to Tahoe to go skiing and I'd be like at home, like putting money in my mom's retirement account, you know, like that's, that's, that's the way that I interacted with, you know, tech wages. And I know that I'm not the exception to the rule. I think like that is pretty much the rule for a lot of folks that come from marginalized communities. Can you talk about like the culture and the vibe of what you've built at Black and Brown Founders and how understanding what it means to come from a marginalized background, how that changes the way you build community with each other and the way you navigate what are going to be, let's say, like the norms and kind of like the microculture of this group? The thing is, trust is something that needs to be earned. And trust is something that you need to like, always be thinking about. And I think that when you come from places where just who you are discounts and dismisses you. Like I've literally seen people's cap table be at a much lower valuation, not because of the product that they're creating, not because of the market capitalization, not because of any of the things that you're taught that you should be looking at for somebody's valuation, but because of who they are. And so trust to me is like the, the cornerstone of things like, uh, and how you kind of can create a community where you can have wholeheartedly engagement and people could see each other um, and be able to engage with each other because they trust each other. That's how you build some sort of amount of progress. And I think like that's the the thing that I always try to like strive for is like, can I create a system where people feel like what we're doing, whether it's our bootstrapping bootcamp, you know, whether it's, you know, our online events. Um, and I say online cause we're in COVID times now, but we've done a lot of in-person events. How is it that people feel when they come in? And I think like being recognized and feeling like this, this is a group of people you can trust is also important. Del Del is the executive director of Black and Brown Founders, a group that was formed by a friend of hers, Ania Williams. The two of them had met via a different tech nonprofit and shared a desire to address disparities in venture funding and other resources for Black and Latinx entrepreneurs. I'm thinking like, there's just something here that doesn't make sense. And that's when we started having a lot of conversations about like, what does it look like to actually build tech and tech-enabled products? for ourselves, by ourselves, and not have to take anybody's money. That if you want to take money, it should be a part of financing. It should be a part of like opportunity making. You shouldn't be reliant upon having to take somebody's check for your company to be successful. There's companies out there that have IPO'd and are still not financially successful. But the reason they've gotten there is because they've been propped up by a system that insists on getting paid back. It's a system that has never worked for folks in general. If you do not come from a certain class and race level, like it just doesn't, it's just not a good system for people in general. But now at this point, it, things that were cracks before COVID have now become chasms. I think everyone's just struggling. If you're like our age, like for example, it's, this is the first real hardcore economic downturn that you've experienced. Yeah, maybe 2008, but maybe you were just coming out of university or college. Mm-hmm. So you weren't really in the economy. Um, and if you start a company now, and this is like, you know, it's no longer on the up and up. Um, I've, I've spoken to a lot of other founders who are just like, 
do I shut the company down? Do I keep going? Are there any ways that I can, you know, pivot? Even my company at certain points, it was tough. You know, we do a lot of recruitment work. So and recruitment is kind of the first thing to go during an economic downturn. And then obviously people who are looking for work or have been let go. Um, Abadesi actually was let go from her job, but we talked about that on the podcast and we tried to, you know, not try to paint ourselves as like these gurus that know everything. Like we go through struggles as well. There's, it's been, it's been difficult. The whole notion of community is, or should be, at least, a group of people who support each other. This brings me back to the article I read that mourned the loss of serendipity in Silicon Valley. Now that COVID and remote work means that tech workers are no longer geographically, physically near each other. If the greatest serendipity success stories were ones of getting funding from venture capitalists, that's a really limiting view of community. It reduces the idea of community to a transactional one. It's not about solidarity and sharing and sacrifice. I think like the word community has been co-opted by technology and tech companies. You have tech products that are supposed to be built to actually connect us more than ever, but actually have been harmful in actually creating real community and engagement. There's a lot of technology that's gotten built to meet investor metrics, not necessarily human metrics or human needed metrics, right? During this time, like we've been interacting with people as more online than we ever have versus like doing our, you know, in-person events or like that sort of thing. And it's not easy. Like not everybody has great access to internet. Like not everybody has great access to things right now, people are having a hard time. And that juxtaposition, I think, is like the part that I think we're all struggling with right now. I don't know if we currently have the methodologies or the understanding as human beings to be able to engage in these things right now. We have been able to have methodologies and engagement points that drive paranoia and fear. And that's why I say like, if you want to build community, you have to have a sense of trust. And right now, I would say very few people trust very few things. Who you trust and how you trust is an exercise onto itself right now. In 1968, we had a group of folks that said enough is enough and we actually need full citizenship in this country. Those folks, Black folks, you know, enabled the rest of us to have full citizenship and engagement, um, regardless of who you were, where you come from. Because that work was done, we were lulled into thinking that we actually had integrated as a society. But the reality is that we never really had true integration, not at work and not within communities. And technology has not necessarily been helpful in the last 10 years to actually create that, you know, integration that's needed, it's created more silos. And so, you know, regardless of who becomes president or what the outcomes are, the reality is the work still needs to be done. And we still need to be asking these questions and the sense of urgency around this work still needs to happen. Rework is produced by Waylon Wong and me, Sean Hildner. Music for the show is by Clipart. Deldel Medina is on Twitter at Deldel. That's D-E-L-D-E-L-P. The P is silent. Black and Brown Founders is at blackandbrownfounders.com and on Twitter at bbfounders. Michael Berhane is on Twitter at michaelberhane underscore. That's Michael B-E-R-H-A-N-E underscore. Pocket is at peopleofcolorintech.com and at P-O-C in tech on Twitter. 
You can hear Michael and his co-host Abadesi on the Techish Podcast, T-E-C-H-I-S-H Podcast. Their show is available on whatever app you're using to listen to our show. Oh, one more thing about being in the woods is the other day I was saying to my husband, I was like, you know how The Revenant is about Leo getting revenge on the bear that killed his family? Is that what it's about? My husband goes, that is not what the movie's about. And I was like, it's not? I was like, well, I haven't seen it. Oh, can we have this podcast? Like the misremembered movie. That she's never seen. (laughs) (sighs) 